Alrighty, we got ourselves another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. The Stanley Cup playoffs are done. We have ourselves a Stanley Cup champion. And before we dove into the playoffs, we went ahead and we did a podcast where we drafted teams, our favorite teams to win the Stanley Cup. We did that with Chris Wassell, as well as Kung Fu Canuck. And we're bringing those lads back on the podcast today to review the playoffs that we just saw. So we're starting off here with Kung Fu Canuck. And how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. I'm good. And I'm not sure if your listeners know, that's actually not my real name. I didn't know if it was obvious, uh, (laughs) just in case there was any confusion. Yes, it's uh, You're not not going to find me in the phone book. Yeah, no doubt. Um, We haven't yet received any, like, woke backlash against uh, us appropriating that name. And uh, I think that speaks to this being a very niche podcast. But if uh, if we ever break through and and, and start getting... uh, backlash against that then we'll know that we've broken through uh, that will be awesome i'd be happy to explain <laughs> the terrible joke behind it to anyone who who asks but I, i'm not going to take up valuable airtime to do so fair enough um so we we have a stanley cup champion that yes we do that's i don't know it's staggering to me like i was all spring since the shutdown i was optimistic that they would be able to pull off the comeback uh, I'm wondering, are you surprised that things went as swimmingly as they did? Um, I, yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised. I mean, you never know what's going to happen with an unknown thing. I, I think that there was a lot of fair skepticism about the bubble when they first came up with it. it I mean, in hindsight, um, in hindsight, it was a great idea, you know, but, but much like the, the, the lightning winning the cup, it, it feels more inevitable now looking back than it, than it did certainly at the beginning. Um, but, but kudos to the NHL, kudos to the, you know, massive expenditure and effort that they put in to make this work. Kudos to the players for signing off on it and being away from their families for you know, sometimes some of them up to two months. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously the support staff who, who made it happen, I mean, you know, it seems to be going well in the NBA. Um, so I, I mean, I must say like, it's, it, it, it's a little shocking to think about where we were back in April when it looked like we were just going to be canceling the season, but here we are. I, I'm, I could not be happier unless there was a completely different outcome to the actual playoffs, but right. you know, can't, can't have everything. Right. And it was an absolute whirlwind and it was nice to have that distraction because there really wasn't much else other than sports available for distractions. Like I'm fairly fortunate up here in Northwestern Ontario where the restrictions, we're still, we're very much under the thumb of what's happening down in Southern Ontario. So things are, are scaling back down and restrictions are ramping back up again. But all, all the same, like we were able to go out and enjoy the great outdoors for all of summer. But other than that, it was, you know, you're watching sports or you're getting out in the wilderness. And those are two of my favorite things. So strangely, this was a very idyllic summer for me. And like 
absolute kudos to everyone in the NHL who is involved in pulling this off. You mentioned the NBA. There have been lots of reports of players really not handling the bubble very well. And I think we've gotten whispers of that out of the NHL, but it, it sure seems like less complaints. And I, I don't know if we're just, the NHL is, is stamping that out before players can, can make too many complaints. I know that some of the things that were promised to the players weren't available most uh, explicitly uh, with the travel restrictions not allowing a lot of the families to come up from the U.S. to enter the bubble when they, they had been previously promised. But I don't think we're ever going to see a, a bubble environment again because of some of those shortcomings. What do you think? Yeah, I, I imagine that if the players knew that going in, in the end, the family is not going to be able to join them, which I, I remember was a possibility it was not a guarantee at the time because obviously it was something that was a little bit out of their hands uh, the league anyway uh maybe they would have felt differently you know if you actually knew that for sure that uh that that making it all the way to the end meant absolutely not seeing your family for two months who knows maybe they would have felt differently and yeah i'm sure now another bubble seems quite unlikely um i have to imagine show uh taking away something they promised the players like you know uh, extra condiments on their food or 10% of their salaries next season. Um, but, but you know, like, it's one of those ad hoc things where you have a bit of an understanding of it, right? So, you, you know, you know, everyone's kind of doing the best they can. It's not like the league wanted the players to not have families there. It's just the league is not the government of Canada or, or the provincial governments of Alberta or Ontario. So, I do think you're right. Though. I don't. I think that means the the end of the bubble system for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and and not only that, it seems like everyone needs fans to be back in the stands for a return to happen. So we may be a very long fall without sports. Although it sure seems like football is going to be kicking around. They just they just keep pressing on through every. Uh, every case that comes up they're going to find a way and all the injuries it's it's football it's uh, the show must go on yeah yeah football's never been one to to care about their players health and safety for the for you know it's not exactly been something they've stopped the league over um i i am happy for the sake of the bubble that it ended just as cases are exploding in in you know certainly on in southern ontario and you know, I cannot imagine we're too far away from exploding in the other hot, uh, hot spots in Canada. So just that's just fortunate timing, I think. Fortunate and and strangely, like what, what happens if all these players go back home and they're trying to have their day with the cup and trying to get back, integrate themselves back into society. And it's like, holy man, like I remember being in the bubble and not really being afraid and having access to testing all the time. And now suddenly like, this is terrifying out here. Yeah, it's like Brooks and Shawshank Redemption. It's like, ah, oh, you know, life, <laughs> life, life moves fast on the outside. Yeah, get busy living or get busy dying, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Lightning won the Cup, but the Dallas Stars came ever so close. And in our playoff draft, you picked the Dallas Stars. You were on the bandwagon, I presume, and I spent a lot of time slagging 
the Dallas Stars both during that podcast and as they proceeded to win every single series up until the final. But I'm wondering, how did you enjoy being on that Stars bandwagon once your Leafs were knocked out? Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And, you know, not just out of professional pride. I really generally do like the Stars. A good friend of mine is a, is a Stars fan. So they've you know, sort of, I, I've sort of adopted them as a little bit as my Western team. Um, you know, so I, I, I was in love with Miro before everyone else was, but not before actual real Dallas Stars fans were. Um, so it felt really good because it's, it's a likable team with certain exceptions. Uh, but, you know, you got to love certain guys like uh, Anton Kudobin, John Klingberg, you know, even even that duo of Sagan and Ben. Like, I, I just, there's a lot to like on that team. So from a personal standpoint, I liked it. And yeah, I was pretty proud. It was a bit of a bit of an underdog pick. Definitely not my first pick, but um, you know, me and Mike McCurdy in effective math on Twitter, we were we were the believers. No question. What do you how do you like what do you think was the most important factor in this team really defying their underlying metrics and like they looked like a completely different team during the bubble from what they were in the regular season. I I think and I'm I, I think that a lot of it is like you said in playoffs, you know, you gotta get hot at the right time. If you look at the biggest difference in their underlying statistical profile, one of the reasons I liked them was that they had a really good expected goals differential they were they were actually six in the league they were clicking at about 53 percent close to it right around where the Bruins were um you know but and doing it similarly the difference with them was that they had a pretty not so good actual goal differential and a lot of it was due to to uh bad shooting or, or, or a bad shooting percentage, at least. That, that was the biggest difference in their profile was not between their expected goals against and their goals against, but between their expected goals for and their actual goals for. So, you know, I think this is one of those things where the six woke up at the right time. Uh, you know, Joe Pavelski performed like playoff Joe Pavelski, which was huge for them. Uh, Miro Heiskin having an amazing offensive campaign certainly helped and doing well in the first three rounds. And, you know, obviously, Dennis Kuryanov, who was, you know, Stars fans will tell you was their frustratingly secret weapon offensively uh, because of the rate at which he scored goals uh, at five on five. And lo and behold, he scores, what was it, four in their clincher against Calgary and the, 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 the conference clincher against Vegas. So I think it's one of those things where the, the, you know, the, the sticks woke up at the right time, as they say. I don't know if there's a whole lot more to it for that team. Uh, and then it was just one of these kind of magical runs. I'm going to throw a stat at you. Tyler Sagan was their only skater to score uh, 1.5 points per 60 at five on five in the regular season. Everyone else was below that, like third line or worse scoring rate. They had seven guys above that in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's one of those, you know, I, unless you're telling me that all those guys were saving it for the bubble, I'm going to say sometimes you, you know, I wouldn't overthink it that 
you know, your shooting wakes up. And then you're writing something, you know? I, I think you can get a little bit romantic about it and say that once you're at that level, once you're kind of clicking along, you're starting to, you know, that confidence does kind of feed in on itself uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way. Fortunately, that kind of reversed for Sagan, I guess. Uh, but then again, that was kind of, I think his his health situation was, I, I'm, I think you'd describe it as like weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Like he's basically just being puppeteered that entire time. He was the black knight from um (laughs) just just lopping off body parts and and continuing to go out there it's just a flesh wound and yeah continue to play good for him like i i actually thought he looked pretty good in the last two games like i thought he looked pretty dangerous that was just my observation i saw the Um, same thing he looked his his shot had spring in it for the first time all playoffs yeah I, I don't know uh, what happened if they shot him up with some of the good stuff, but uh, he he was bringing it at another level. He really he almost scored that goal in the final. I I can't remember who it ultimately ended up going to. I think maybe Pavelski was credited with that one, but um, yeah, he he showed so much more spring in the last few games of that final, and he he ended up scoring at the same rate in the playoffs as he did in the regular season. It's just everyone else went off. I didn't even know that. I, I would not have guessed he was scoring at the actual same rate. Yeah, uh, I mean, points, but, not goals. Right. I, I, I mean, listen, if we're, you know, if we're going to say, like, what, what changed with Dallas, I, it's interesting to look at the fact that Dallas lost their coach. And I, say, I don't say fired. Like, they lost their coach for, because they, they had to let him go because of his, his personal issues. Jim Montgomery is an excellent coach for this team. Um, you know, he, he really, I thought did a great job with them, uh, last year where, where they came within a goal of the conference finals. That's kind of an underdog admittedly. And, uh, aside from that horrific starts that, uh, by the way, my Dallas Stars friend, friend declared the season over, uh, at, you know, after that 07 and one starts, uh, they were humming along quite nicely. And then they sort of get hit with this, you know, sudden firing and then, then you got Rick Bonus, who I don't know. How do you describe Rick Bonus? He's been around forever, but he's not the guy you think of as the ty- the person to come in and save your team. But they must have just absolutely loved him. It sounds like. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the coaching change because there there were lots of reports about how he couldn't really change anything about Jim Montgomery's style during the season. And so they were still very, very passive under him. But in the bubble, we saw how much more aggressive they were at having their defensemen jump into the play. Like it looked like something more akin to what the Columbus Blue Jackets throw at you with defensemen constantly jumping up into the play. There was that one play where I can't remember which uh, which person on the telecast was pointing this out, but it was the Kiviranta overtime goal to knock out Vegas. And it's set up by two defensemen making a play to each other behind the opposing red line. Like they were in behind the net and they made a play to each other. And then Sakara sets up Kiviranta and the game's over. You're never seeing that under Jim Montgomery, but under bonus, they had a lot more freedom to jump in. And I think that allowed them so much more leeway to suddenly be able to score they were generating so many more 
rush chances and those are some of the most dangerous in the game so that's how you suddenly get all these players scoring at a much higher level yeah I, I thought uh and you know I actually I haven't broke down the individual stats on this but uh, I have to imagine that's that's a lot of improvement in that regard from uh, Heiskanen and, and Klingberg and even Alexiak I thought was surprisingly you know good on jumping in and, and he scored said, on a breakaway yeah. Well, was that the one where he was, uh, where he was, like, they caught him like flying down the ice on that speed tracker? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, you know, their two leading scorers were, were, were Klingberg and Heiskanen, um, or at least two of their three, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, as I said before, huge, huge offensive contributions from the blue line and, um, you know, just a, a real. I, I'm not even. I'm not even sure it's fair to call it a breakout season from Mira Heiskanen. More just now, everyone knows. It was a breakout playoffs for sure. Like it, it, he was, he was in the realm of being a, a very strong one. But there was always questions: Does he have the offense? And then he goes out and throws up twenty plus games of a point per game or damn near it. Uh, in the playoffs against some of the best teams and suddenly yes he does have the offense and he still has the defense to back it up so now he's in the conversation with guys like Hedman as among the best two-way players in the game and I think that a playoffs like this is going to go so far for getting him into the Norris conversation almost immediately because there's a there's a reputation play with these awards there's a narrative it's it's broadcasters are and and writers are the ones voting on this stuff so it's all about the narrative and you you look at a guy who puts up such great underlying numbers but maybe the points aren't quite there now if he can get the points there he's got the reputation it's it's a matter of when not if for me that he emerges as a as a norris trophy guy yeah, I'd say you're spot on with calling it like that reputation. Like, I'd be curious if, like, to break down the number of like the average number of years you need to be really good before you start getting serious Norris consideration. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll find out when Jacob Slavin finishes like top three or something. Well, he was top um, five this year. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So yeah, he's right on schedule then. He's been he's been in the league for about what six, five, six years. Something like so, that. Yeah. Yeah, so Heiskanen is, uh, you know, he's already, I, it, it's interesting because you're right. I, I was not even thinking about this as a Norris conversation. I was more even thinking this gets him into that McCarr Hughes conversation as like the next ones. Because it's, it's, I feel like it's sometimes easy to forget. He was, he was uh, McCarr's draft class. Like he was one pick ahead of him, actually. And for some, I think it's just because he got then, he, he actually started in the league immediately after his draft, whereas McCarr didn't come in until last year's playoffs. Um, I feel like people don't always think of them as being uh, draft class peers, but they're the the same age. Yeah, and very interesting conversation. People were talking all about the young defenseman who flashed such tremendous play and potential and the next ones, you, you, you labeled it perfectly. There was all these young defensemen making drastic impacts. Shea Theodore, for the Vegas Golden Knights and Heiskanen for the Stars. And we saw McCarr for the Avs and Hughes for the Canucks. And I mean, Adam Fox, he didn't really have enough time to impose himself. But what about 
Pulak and Taves for the Islander Islanders and Sergachev flashed some some brilliance for the Lightning and it seemed like so many of these teams had these dazzling young defensemen and that helped drive them uh, really far in the playoffs and it, you just wonder who's the best of the bunch. I mean, it's, I'm sure a question that's going to be debated over the next few years. I, I wonder if you're going to start to see hockey, like defense perception finally catch up to forward perception at the elite level of, no, you actually don't need to wait until they're 25 to hand them big minutes. Uh, you know, we've seen for a number of years, uh, you know, it's never been that much of an issue for elite forwards to just come in and, and be handed big minutes because they can they can do it. I feel like defense, it's not we haven't seen a crop of young fairly rookie or sophomore defensemen step into huge roles like this. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly having trouble recalling uh, any time before the last couple of seasons. Yeah, it's, it's very rare. Like it used to be, you didn't break in until you were 22, 23. You had to play at least a year in the AHL after completing wh whether it was college or your WHL or, or whatever it is. But it definitely seems like, well, if you're drafted top five, like you can break in whenever you want. They'll, they'll hand you the keys to the car. Yeah, I, not that the NHL has ever been great about handing things to to young players, but now it's it shifted a bit because it's a double value because you're finding out they're actually a lot better at that age than you think. And of course, you know, as you and I talked about, I think on a previous podcast, best value it's the best value you're going to get for a contract. Absolutely, and I wonder if there isn't also some benefit if you can break these guys in before they're ready to absolutely explode then you can toss them a Roman Yossi-esque contract and now you've got them at value for the entirety of their prime. I do like that idea unless you end up with a situation like Makar Hughes or Heiskanen who I, I think they're probably going to be closer to Roman Yossi's current contract. Oh, absolutely. They will. Yeah. But, when they're, uh, when they're as ready as those guys are, then there's nothing you can do, but if they're not quite as ready, if you get, say, I, I don't know, I just throw Oilers name out there. If they perform like Ethan Bear in his rookie season, well, that's very good, but he's not going to be able to command that type of long-term contract. And so the Oilers could conceivably sign him to an, a Yossi-esque deal. Not that he's going to turn it to Yossi, but it's just an example. And Klingberg is a fantastic example of this paying off for the Dallas Stars. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think you're right that you're probably more likely to unearth one of those great value contracts on defense rather than forward because the defensive impact is not going to be as readily measurable by points. Um, you know, Ethan Bear is not putting up, you know, 65 points in, in a season, but he might provide you value of a number one or two defenseman. I actually don't know how good Ethan Bear is. I could yeah, he's, off, he's a number three. He's a number four. Yeah, that's that's awesome. It's great. I mean, he's a second round pick. He was a fourth round pick. Oh wow! Okay. And then they got Caleb Jones and John Marino in the fifth round of the 2015 draft class. A lot of mistakes in that 2015 draft class for the Oilers. But yeah, their yeah. their late uh, defense picks were not. No, absolutely. Um, you know. One last mistake on the John Marino pick, but, uh, you know, it, good for them for picking him. 
Yeah, as it turns out, he just didn't want to sign with them. And they, they've been the beneficiary of those in the past with uh, Justin Schultz and Matt Benning. So uh, turnabout is fair play. And damn those Penguins for uh, unearthing maybe the best of that trio. Uh, circling back to the Stars, one of the other things that struck me was how good Jamie Benn and Alex Radulov and Joe Pavelski were, and they weren't in the regular season. They were all, frankly, quite dreadful. Like they, they played the system fine enough, but none of them could score worth a lick. And suddenly they looked like they came out of the Wayback Machine. And Jamie Ben wasn't quite prime Jamie Ben, but he was, he was barking at everyone and he was menacing on the four check and he was absolutely housing people. And he even was able to sh shoot from beyond 10 feet and he was able to get the puck within 10 feet. It was fantastic. Radulov was using his giant ass. I think he had a reverse hit on, uh, I can't remember who it was, but he knocked the absolute wind out of them in the finals. And then the stars were finally shooting for tips. So the best tip man in the game and Joe Pavelski was able to rack up an obscene number of goals and it was just it was fantastic to see those guys performing at the highest level again and I wonder if not for a two-month break between the season would we have seen that I don't know the the full story behind what their seasons were like in terms of behind the scenes um is the simplest explanation not just they were nursing those kinds of regular season injuries and they came back a bit healthy and, you know, re ready to go. I, I have to imagine a guy like Ben who always seems to have something like that. Um, Joe Pavelski, I, let's just chalk that one up to, to Joe Pavelski is waiting for the playoffs. <laughs> the guy, the guy's 30, the guy's 35. I, I, I don't, I don't even begrudge him it. Um, I know I would not, I'm th this is what they paid for, right? This was the whole thing when they signed him is you want playoff Joe Pavelski. Uh, it's an interesting point you bring up about shooting for the tips though. I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't quite notice that. I probably didn't watch enough stars games during the regular season to get a handle on whether or not that was absent from their strategy. But it's also, you know, let's also not forget Ben Radulov Sagan was one of the most dangerous lines in the league, you know, two years ago. I think that first season they signed him. I think didn't all those guys, they all broke like 70 points at least. They were both, or the trio of them was fantastic a year ago. And then they were crap this year. I don't know what happened. I don't know if just, if it was just a case of things weren't vibing all that well and they had that really bad start to the season. And maybe they, they were all nursing the odd injury and they're all guys who can really get that fire going. So you can understand why they would be so much better in the playoffs. And I wonder if it, there isn't an element of they were pacing themselves similar to a Pavelski. So I, I definitely think that the layoff helped all those guys. And like you said, I don't begrudge any of them for pacing themselves because we know that all you have to do is get in and then you have a chance. This playoff run proved it. So if those guys can nurse their way through an 82 game season, next year and be at the level that they were at this year if they can avoid injuries like load management do whatever it takes to get yourself there we know that they have that extra gear and they have the veteran savvy and they still have the muscle they can use it all yeah they definitely had that like 
late Kings thing going of uh, it, we'll, we'll turn it on for the playoffs, which is good because if you're just looking at this team right now, my first instinct would be that like, you know what? Great. This is an amazing run. I wouldn't, this, this would, I, if I had to bet, this would feel like the, the pinnacle of this team. But I, like you said, all you have to do, all they had to do this year was make it in. So why, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they could just do that again next year. If I, if I was betting, I would think that this is a team that we don't see make it again. I think the last time that we had a team make the cup final and then lose and then go on another run, even winning, it, it's so rare to make it back again. And so often just between luck and the rigors of, of getting back there, like it's, it's really the hardest trophy to win. Just having talent isn't enough. So between the age of all those players and the miles on them and who knows when we're able to play again, I would think that this is probably the last time we saw them make a run like this and good for them for going on it. But it just, it seems like so often you see these teams pop up for a year and they rise and then they fall way faster than you think that they might. Yeah. I mean, to, off the top of my head, if you, take out the fact that you had kind of the, the, the mini dynasties with, with LA and, and Pittsburgh and Chicago more in the first half of the decade. The only ones I can think of that did what you talked about, which is, you know, lose and come back are Boston and Tampa, you know, with, the, with that same core, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Boston obviously actually did it twice where they, where they won and then they, you know, went back in 2013 and lost and they went back last year. Um, and then Tampa, obviously, with, you know, a, a different team from 2015, but the same the same bones of it. And arguably, those have been the two, two of the most consistently elite franchises in the last six, seven years. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I do hope the Dallas Stars get back here, but... You know, I think it's I, I, I say it as no slight to them that this feels like the pinnacle because as you said, it, it's most most of the time it's the pinnacle for a team. Most of the time, just even reaching the final win or lose is the pinnacle for, for a team in, in that cycle of building and rebuilding. Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for the Oilers to get back from when they made it in 06. And uh, I'm waiting for the Leafs to uh, get back from the last time they made it. I, I don't uh, I have that information off the top of my head. But. Yeah, it was before 93 because they, they lost in the conference finals to the Kings or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Don't, I'm sure someone on Twitter will, will say it or have it as their profile name. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Um, so we, you mentioned the, the Tampa Bay Lightning and their run throughout the past decade just thinking about it how do you appropriate what what the decades are and stuff like that I almost feel like we had a decade from the cap era like the start of the cap era coming out 06 the Hurricanes beat the Oilers we made reference to it and then you got the Ducks win and you got the back-to-back -back Penguins 
Penguins Red Wings matchup and then the Kings and the Blackhawks they toss Stanley Cups back and forth and you've got the interloper of Boston in there a little bit and then I almost feel like a new decade starts that was 10 years 10 10 cup champions a couple of repeats but uh, otherwise and then the decade almost starts anew with the Penguins back-to-back. And so I, I feel like we're in a bit of a different decade. But if you were just talking the 2010s, does this Stanley Cup count as part of it, or are we in a new decade here? I can't think of this win as a new decade because it's hard for me to not think of this Tampa Bay team as a continuous thing core from about 2013-14. And obviously, that's discounting the fact that some of these players have been on the team since 2008. But I, or, or even if you want to say the Tampa Bay team is, you know, starts with, with Steve Eisman taking over the team. But it's hard for me to think of this Tampa Bay win as anything but the culmination of something bigger. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I put it, I, I actually thought of it slightly differently. I thought of it as 2009 to like 2018 was a range for me because okay. that was this. That was this this that was this uh, era of cup champions led by people from the o four to o seven slash o eight draft class. If that makes any sense, you know you had you had your guys. Basically, it was it was your Malkins, your Crosby's, uh, Latang, Taze, Kane, uh, Ovechkin, Dowdy, uh, Kopitar, and then obviously some earlier guys too not it's not like every single player on those cup champions was drafted in that time frame but that was sort of how I always thought about it and then St. Louis was a bit of a similar thing to Tampa where again kind of a culmination you had this core that had been together for a while at least parts of it had been you had some mainstays and then it all sort of came together Tampa is a similar thing to me Although Tampa is its own franchise. Tampa is, has been a special franchise in my mind for the last six, seven years. Well, and interestingly, they lose to Boston in the conference finals in 2011 as well, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a team that oh yeah, I forgot you, about you, that. Can, you can go all the way back to the very first years of Hedman Stamkos where this team was competitive but if you're just talking the 2010s um they rank fifth in regular season wins and regular season points in terms of playoffs they are seventh in the number of playoff appearances with uh with seven in the last 11 seasons pittsburgh's the only team that's made every playoffs since going back to what 08 was their first playoffs or 07 I think uh Crosby's sophomore year but uh they've made not anymore and then what technically I'm counting this year um okay conference finals they've made more than anyone from 2010 onward uh Stanley Cup finals they're tied for second they've had a couple of appearances both Chicago and Boston are the top teams with the first and then Stanley Cup wins, they're one of only a handful of teams to win it in the last 11 years. So 
definitely a culmination of of a growth of, of several eras like it was what Jay Feaster who gets to draft Stamkos number one overall and then you had the Brian Lawton era for a couple of not so good years while they were trying to uh, rebuild their franchise but Le Cavalier and, and St. Louis are still around and at some point uh, Brad Richards leaves for the Dallas Stars interestingly enough um, and then Iserman takes over in, in 2010 and he's responsible for building much of the team that we saw win this Stanley Cup. So I think that Iserman is going to go down as getting a lot of the credit for this Stanley Cup win. But I think we should note the buttons that Julian Breezebois pushed as well. But I mean, Iserman, would you take him as your GM over Breezebois? I might do it just based on the track record. Um, you know, Brisewa, I think, has proven himself to be an exceptional GM, but he he did have a lot to work with, right? I, uh, I remember joking with someone on Twitter about how I, I we were talking about Kyle Dubas, and I said like, I, there's a lot I like about Kyle Dubas in terms of how he runs things. I just wish he had a bit of a killer instinct. Uh, I said I wish I wish it was Kyle Dubas's vision and talent evaluation with like, let's say, you know, Lou Lamorella's killer instinct and someone said oh you want Steve Eiserman that's the guy you're looking for so I, I do think Steve Eiserman building building this team from the ground up obviously with the exception of the fact that Stamkos and Hedman were there and you can't discount arguably two of your best players but you know the scouting under Eiserman has been it's been otherworldly I, I don't think there's any other way of saying it the number of star talents that they've unearthed in uh, the later rounds, mostly somewhat on the back of burning a lot of their first round picks, uh, which, which is always a funny thing to think about uh, with, with this team. But the number, you know, the drafting is just part of it. The, the cap management has been, you know, fantastic too. And some of that's happenstance, right? Some of that is, you know, Stamkos makes a different decision in 2016 none of maybe none of this happens maybe if he signs Stamkos to a huge deal in 2015 maybe none of this happens either so like anything else there's a lot of luck that goes into it but I think you gotta give Eiserman credit for building the bones of in some ways a model franchise yeah I mean this this is a team that easily could have won the cup in any of the previous what six seven seasons go back to 2015 when they lost in the cup final they they could have won multiple championships and it just they they had kicks at the can every single year and even that one year where they missed the playoffs randomly they were absolutely rolling towards the end of the season and if they would have made the playoffs that could have been one of those eight seeds that you do not want to play yeah, I, I, it's a team that you're almost surprised doesn't have. Like when you look back on it and you look at the guys who could end up in the Hall of Fame, like you're talking, talking about like 20 years from now, you might look back and wonder how this team only won one cup. It might look like that, that, uh, that you know, like 1989 Flames team or the 1999 Stars team. It's like, oh man, I can't believe you only won once. I, I, always, I always like this. You know, if you look at, the, look at every move the Tampa Bay Lightning have made in the last, call it five years. How many moves would you say they've made where you would say, oh, that was a mistake? Like that, like they messed up that move. 
Uh, the number one that stands out for me, and it was, I know it was outside of the last five years, but the 2013 draft, when they had the number four pick and, or the number three pick and took Druan and then Seth Jones falls to number four. For me, that was always one of the greatest what if scenarios ever, because what if Seth Jones, uh, they grab him and suddenly they have these two pillars on defense in Hedman and Jones. Well, I think your previous guest, Jay Fresh, would say that they probably wind up about the same as where they are now, <laughs> considering what he thinks of, of Seth Jones. And uh, uh, But that, that, is, that is crazy to think about, actually. Um, not that they did too bad with what they ended up turning Jonathan Duran into. So, you know, fantastic on them. It, I always thought the one mistake that looked like a mistake at the time and maybe proved to be a mistake as well was the Callahan contract. Yeah. Which was, you know, one of these your hands are tied because you, you got the guy, he's entering free agency. You traded your captain for him. You want him on your team. You're going to have to sign him to a big ticket that you probably don't like. And it, I wouldn't say quite bit them in the ass and they managed to get out of it with one of the most convenient LTIR, uh, you know, LTI retirements that we've seen recently. But you know, that, that was, that's the only one that really stands out to me as like, Oh man, that was an obvious mistake on your part. And I wonder if the Callahan situation didn't inform their decision with JT Miller when they traded him mostly because they had the flexibility to do it. And he was the one contract that they could afford to move. And for whatever reason, he didn't, really gel they were using him on the fourth line and then he goes to Vancouver and it's like no this is a first line player like <laughs> I don't know how it didn't work there but they managed to get very good value and then they exchanged him for a player who fit so much more seamlessly with this reinvented third line that they could throw at teams with Blake Coleman and uh, Barclay Goodrow joining Yanni Gourd uh, a line that had just absolutely ran opposing teams, number one lines over, just checking and forechecking and just a thoroughly throwback performance reminiscent of those fantastic third lines that the Detroit Red Wings would always throw out with guys like Kirk Maltby and, and I can't remember all the other names. Dan Cleary was involved and um, yeah, names of your it was really reminiscent of that and I wonder if that Callahan experience didn't inform their decision to get out on JT Miller early I think that's a very interesting parallel to draw like the JT Miller thing was always fascinating to me because they got him more or less for Vlad Nemesnikov not exactly obviously because it was part of that huge McDonough trade but if you kind of look at the parts going in and out it was sort of McDonough, they throw uh, a first and a conditional first in, a couple of prospects who have been fine. Uh, and then you have this sort of weird Nemesnikov, JT Miller swap of, of you know, they're about the same age, they're playing about the same role. That one always puzzled me a little bit uh, when the Rangers did it. And then when, the you know, Tampa traded him a year later, that was, I thought, always a great strength of Irishman's too, uh, or, or, or just the organization. I know Breezewell made the Miller trade was they had to get out from under a contract. And they every team should have had them over a barrel. And Vancouver gives up a first that, you know, I, Vancouver fans will 
have said all they will about that trade and more power to them. JT Miller has been fantastic, but that trade could have ended up very badly for Vancouver. I thought Tampa got a great price for it. So again, just it, you look at the way the franchise runs, even the stuff that looks like a mistake or even the stuff that where it looks like they're in trouble, they, they somehow always manage to turn into advantage. I think that's just the, the, it's the hallmark of a well-run franchise. You know, things click along. It's like that third line fitting in, doing their job. Everything just seems to go nice and smoothly. The gears run together. Um, again, I think I'm going to say mostly on the back of the fact that you just keep drafting amazing players in the, in the later rounds. I don't think there's any substitute for that. Yeah, and I wonder if this is also a testament to their player development. Because do all these players turn into what they are if they land with a different franchise? I just, I just think back to the number of players who didn't quite pan out for the Edmonton Oilers. And do they draft uh, a Braden Point and he ends up having a career like Robbie Shrimp? And it just all this talent and it never pans out. Like, there, there's a huge involvement of the the player themselves in whether they pan out or not. There's that intrinsic internal drive, whether you're going to find a way to succeed or not. But if you don't land with the right teachers and the right opportunities and the right pacing at the right time, do you end up developing the way that you possibly could? Like, there's you wouldn't have coaches and you wouldn't have player development if it wasn't important. So if it was so easy, everyone would do it. And I, I don't think that everyone does. seems to me it's kind of like goaltending, right? It's maybe it's not the determinative factor, but if you don't have good development, you will also not develop anyone good. Like maybe, maybe Braden point, maybe Tampa is not the only team Braden point turns into Braden point with, but certainly he's not turning into Braden point with the, you know, Pat Quinn era leaps. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good point. I was thinking that you were going to say that it's very relative to goaltending in the terms that you take a guy like Anton Hudobin and when he plays for, say, Boston or Dallas, these excellent defensive teams, he's outstanding, whereas he really didn't perform all that well when he was with the Carolina Hurricanes and he got one of his first shots at the NHL. And that was back when the Hurricanes were an absolute tire fire in the, uh, the pre, um, uh, I, the, the, the new owner's name escapes me at this time. But uh, yeah, like in the era before that, when um, Jim Rutherford and that sort of thing were running the team. And if they ever made the playoffs, they were going to the conference finals, but they never made the playoffs. So you didn't have to worry about them. Yeah, I mean, fit, I think, is is the word there. And you're right. I, I fit is a huge part of it. Although, you, wouldn't you almost look at it the other way with Tampa, <clears throat> excuse me, and say, well, how, how do you fit so many amazing forwards? And, I, I mean, they just kind of do. So I, I do think that definitely speaks to a great development system that they have. Like, they just – their players do seem to get better under them. Um, so, so full credit to the development staff as well as the scout, as well as the scouting staff. But if I recall correctly, like Nikita Kucherov and Braden Point, who are probably their two biggest successes, those are guys who I guess maybe looking back, people say, "How did you miss them?" You know, Anthony Sorelli is maybe a guy that you're like, "Oh, that's a good find," 
but Bray, I think with Brain Point and, and Kucherov is like, ah, how, do, how does everyone miss these guys? Yeah, Braden Point specifically because the numbers were there and sure, like that's a very much, oh, he's small and he can't skate that well. Like you totally understand how it happened, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, did, like take a chance on the talent before the 79th pick. But I do think there is a bit of a luxury where some franchises can take a chance on a guy like Nikita Kucherov and they've got the connections and, and the flexibility and the market where they feel confident they can bring a Russian player over, whereas some franchises, I, I just don't think they're even willing to go there. That's a fair point too. And I mean, we do, we do sometimes overlook how political scouting is, right? I mean, even within a team scouting staff, you know, you, sometimes you got to throw a pick to your, to your, you know, Southwest American scouts, uh, even, if, even if it's not, your best player available so it you know just one of a number of factors i think that you're right you go into where you know maybe not every team's going to draft nikita kucherov even if they do identify him as, a, as an excellent player but again just one of those things where i i hate this term because it gets annoying <clears throat> but it's a model franchise in the sense that every franchise should hope that they are run as well as the tampa bay lightning even if the tampa bay lightning did make the occasional mistake or didn't win as much as the Pittsburgh Penguins did. And can we talk about them not panicking and firing John Cooper? Like John Cooper, he is now the longest tenured head coach in the NHL. And after last year's flame out, they easily could have canned him. And doesn't that just look like a brilliant bit of patience? I uh, <clears throat> I definitely think that um, it did. It almost sounded more like they were going to can him after 2018. I thought, it, like when they blew their their uh, that three two lead to the Capitals and and they got shut out in both games. I my my memory of it, it seems to be the the chorus for people calling for Cooper to be fired was almost louder then. I think by 2019 it was just such a shocking thing because you had this incredible regular season and then this really shocking uh sweep it almost felt like you knew it was going to be an overreaction if you fired cooper because it wasn't like it was the same problems as always this was a sudden thing that had never happened to them before getting swept in the first round hadn't happened to them since since you know 2013 and 14 that the beginning of this cooper sort of triplets era um so i i i, I think it, it certainly is a smart idea but it sounds like it was a no-brainer for Tampa's uh, Tampa's ownership and, and the front office was that we're not going to change course. In, well, in hindsight, at least. That's what the articles are saying the last six months. Well, and it paid off in spades because now they have the second Stanley Cup in their franchise's history. And it really seems like the patience completely paid off. He was their guy. He led their... AHL team to a Stanley or to a, a a Calder Cup win and then they brought him up shortly after that and he led them to, to the cup final and they had all these hits and all these misses over the years and, and came ever so close but they they stuck with him and now the whole team really gets to uh to celebrate a uh what was a long time coming for them and you think about all the times that they could have possibly broken it up 
And with that, uh, pleased to also be joined by Chris Wassell. Um, Chris, we were just talking about the Tampa Bay Lightning's uh, legacy, the smart decision to stick with John Cooper, and you had the smartest decision out of any of us with uh, with your selection of them in our pre-playoff Stanley Cup winner draft. Uh, so congratulations to you, Chris. Um, how does it feel to, to join uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning as a champion in this strange 2020 season? Yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy nutty sort of, sort of uh, last two months, hasn't it, guys? Um, shoot. I mean, I'm, hu- I'm humbled just by the fact that, hey, uh, one of my picks actually panned out for a change. Usually this goes horribly wrong somewhere at some point down the line. It's nice to know that for once, things went the way they were kind of supposed to, um, even though, uh, as, we're, as we're finding out today, it's going to be interesting to see the laundry list of uh, injuries as they come out, even for Tampa Bay uh, in the long run. But Dallas's was definitely a um, an interesting wrinkle. Uh, this just in... Uh, Tyler Sagan now has a finger injury to go with the hand, knee, uh, hand, knee, wrist, groin, you name it, uh, list of injuries that he already has. But uh, as we were joking before, just a flesh wound. Just a, fl- just a scratch. Not, nothing, <laughs> nothing to it. Uh-huh. I have a bad feeling he's going to end up on one of those Rick Westhead documentaries 10 years from now. Uh, hopefully only for this, uh, only for this run. I you know, good for him. Uh, hope he's okay though. So while yeah. we're on Sagan, um, he won a Stanley Cup so early in his career that it almost feels like it wasn't like he he felt like a little bit of an interloper on what was otherwise this Bruins core that we, that we've grown with over the last decade. Uh, with the Marchand and Bergeron and Krejci and the like being there for so long and Chara as well, if I didn't mention him, um, he felt like a little bit of an interloper and that he's traded so quickly before he even really emerged as a legit player. And I also felt similar parallels there with Corey Perry. He was a bit more impactful on the Anaheim Ducks win, but again, a very young player when he first won that cup. So it almost didn't feel like they really owned that cup the same way that the players who are in their prime or past their prime, and this is kind of their last kick at it, uh, have that same ownership. What do you think about that, Chris? Yeah, it's interesting because <clears throat> 2007, I, I got I, I got the, I can, I'm probably one of those rare people that can say that I was at a cup celebration on the East Coast and I was in a cup locker room on the West Coast. Um, strange, two totally different um, atmospheres. And it, and it's true. Um, you looked at the Niedermeyers, except, uh, uh, you know, the veterans on, on Anaheim in 2007 and, that period, even even gets left. Both were young, very young, and it's it's got to be this weird feeling. It's like wow, you come into the league relatively quickly, and just like that, you're a Stanley Cup champion. 
There had to be, you figure with Sagan too, you figured two cup final appearances in three years, he probably figured, hey, this is going to happen a lot. And then obviously that, that you know, that's not, that summer he gets traded right, right before the draft, which was a surreal experience in of itself. Um, and you, you look around and go, hmm. Now, you know, now obviously this is his team, but as opposed with him with Boston, uh, completely different where it's like he just, he almost like, he just rode on the coattails of a, a Boston leadership. It had to be, it had to be valuable uh, as far as a learning experience for him. Um, and it's just unfortunate yeah. now that we're finding out about all these injuries and you kind of wonder, it's like, well, what Dallas would have looked like if, Sagan didn't have, you know, wasn't the one arm, one leg. I mean, you hate the joke about it, but unfortunately it's just, he had so many injuries and he, yet he was still able to find a way to play. Um, but for him, at least it, it's gotta be a different feeling than even from say, say a Corey Perry um, in the sense that he was even younger than Perry at the time uh, from, from an, NHL chronological standpoint and to find success that that fast where it was basically like they were they were just Boston was just fire that year um well except for the first two games of the Stanley Cup final but no one cares about that now um that's that's kind of the uh footnote in this for him what I'm interested now is who we almost have to ask who is next year's sort of Tyler Sagan like player, you know, that was a, co you know, basically a co player that was on a, on the coattails uh, that happens to get on one of these runs. Uh, that, that'll be interesting to see. Cause I'll give you guys a hint. I'm not picking Tampa Bay next year in advance. We're just saying it right now, just to get it out of the way done. There will be no repeat done. Well, Mr. Canuck, who do you think, is the favorite and did you have an answer to uh to chris's perhaps unanswerable question who is the next uh sagan interloper type player um i was gonna say whoever gets traded off tampa this year to make room for for sorelli's contract but but they might move out an old guy so mm -hmm. that's a tough one to say um I, I don't think we've seen, have we seen anyone come in like Sagan where they win it that young uh, and, and are like also a very high traffic. It just does not tend to happen very much because, you know, with Boston, it was the exception because, because they drafted Sagan second overall the year before. I don't remember who they got that pick from. Don't remind me. Um, so I, I can't really say who I think is going to be the intro, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say Tampa is going to trade someone and it's going to turn out to be a JT Miller situation. And, it's going to turn out that they're, uh, you know, they're going to lead their team to the cup final. So no, you're right, uh, Chris, no, no repeat for Tampa, but we will see a Tampa Bay player in the cup final next year. Uh, maybe on Colorado, the prohibitive favorite. Well, yeah. Is it, is it someone like Andre Burakovsky is that guy? Because he, I don't know, relatively young, won the cup with the Washington Capitals. And does it feel like he's bringing that with him? to Colorado but does that even count because he's not as much as he played like a star player in these playoffs he's not necessarily that level of player and maybe at some point we'll come to think of him that way but even on that Colorado team I, I don't necessarily believe that he's even sniffing the top five 
first players that you think about. I forgot until just this moment that that he was on Colorado. So that's a very good point. Um, I, yeah, it's just you just don't see a lot of young star players get traded, uh, and and more you know even more rare that they're traded from Stanley Cup winning teams. That's a, good, that's a very good question, though. I, I, I'm, I'd be curious to think about that. I, I actually do think – I think Colorado is a favorite next year. I don't think there's a Tampa, though. Not, not for me. Like, I don't – there's not a team – well, really, except Tampa. There isn't a team that looks like a Tampa Bay Lightning to me uh, next year, at least not right now. Okay, so here's a question. Do we all agree, and I'll start with you, Chris, that the best team won this year? Ultimately, yes. Um, would they have won? I, I guess the question is, would they have won regardless if there was a normal regular season or a quote-unquote normal regular season? And that answer probably is also yes. Um, I know a lot of people disagree, but look, Tampa Bay was the best team all year. I know record-wise, yeah, no, 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 but um, more or less – you kind of had this sort of feeling that uh, barring cataclysmic injury, uh, even with Stamkos being out, I, I thought they were still at least slight favorites. Uh, all right, I'm not going to lie. I did load up on a major amount of Tampa Bay players in my office pools brackets. So, yeah, I was kind of invested in, in it a little bit. So... I have to come clean with that. And we do, we do want to take this little bit of space here to apologize to all the people from the NHL.com fantasy uh, office pool that I killed so badly. Um, I'm very sorry. I did not meet the, mean to beat the entire league by 40 plus points, even Pete Jensen. Um, my bad. Um, no, it, it was ugly, guys. It was actually... When you get an email from people saying that they've conceded after the after the second round, that that's when you know it's bad. Um, I, I, I there is at some point where you legitimately feel terrible because you want you you want these playoff pools to be competitive, especially this year. You wanted more competition, um, only because of the uniqueness of it all. And I was in five of them, guys. And I think every one of them was over by the end of the conference finals. I just, just simply, I went with one template and went with it on every single draft and it worked. And I, I can honestly say it's probably the first time that it's ever gone that well. And I'm hoping it's not the last because office pools is kind of enough to pick, pick me up for next year. Uh, we're going to be brain, brain trusting, brain, Ah, brainstorming. Uh, that word will come out eventually. Uh, some <laughs> ideas for the uh, for the regular season, guys. Whatever the heck that's going to start. And um, look, I'm humbled by it more than anything because it's been a long, strange trip in this journal journalist thing. And ah, I'm I'm lucky. I I really am, considering what other people go through and and what. You know, some 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 of my female fantasy uh, fantasy sport friends go through on on a daily basis. I consider myself extremely privileged. Well, Chris, 
we knew that this was going to be a victory lap for you and, and <laughs> certainly you've taken that. Uh, do you also get a day with the cup? You know what? I guess you get like what the virtual tinfoil cup or something. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, um, I think uh, David Satriano jokingly was going to, um, when we were able to all get together once this was kind of like calmed down and after we get past whatever inevitable second wave that does come later this month or next month, um, we were going to jokingly get make a tinfoil cup at Moe's and put queso in it and I was going to drink out of it. Um, that was about the closest that we were going to get. I'll, I'll take it. Okay, well, you got to send me a video of you making that celebration, drinking out of the tinfoil cup because we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna definitely do it. for that. Um, I, the other thing I, I'll send you guys eventually is the picture of the epic 28 inch pizza I, I, I scarfed down on Sunday night, um, for work, mind you. Uh, that, 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 that is wild. That is, that is, that's the other thing I want to eventually do is be able to, like, you know create recreate stanley cup type things out of ridiculous amounts of food <laughs> that, that, that could be its own instagram account um reeling things back in mr canuck uh the same question for you did the right team win yeah i, I mean i don't think that there's any doubt about it uh first of all my my fantasy league owes me an apology um because they stuck me with the st louis blues um, and, and Chris, I hope that the apology I get is, is as genuine and heartfelt as the one that you just gave. Um, I, I do think the right team won. Uh, you know, they were top of the league in basically all the stats you want. You know, expected goals, possession, uh, actual goals. They, you know, we, you and I sort of talked about it, Steve. This, was, this felt like an inevitable culmination of this team. They were loaded at every position. They had one of the best goaltenders in the league. They had one of the best, you know, one of the best blue lines in the league, sort of top to bottom. And arguably, you know, sort of pound for pound, the best forward core we've seen in many, many years. Here's one thing I always wonder about this team, and, and I'm sure we can get into it, is it's interesting to look at the teams they played. Um, they basically only played teams that you would call quote unquote defensive in a way. Um, you know, the blues and the Bruins played basically identical kind of hockey, not you know, to somewhat different results, but basically identical, very, very low events, very protect the net, not exactly offensive juggernauts. The stars were a good expected goals team, but a pretty lousy actual goals team. And the Islanders well, I'm not going to say bad things about the Islanders because I, I don't want their fans to come after me for doing that. But, but the Islanders were fairly mediocre to below average in a lot of underlying stats. So the one thing I would have liked to see as like an interesting thing, if you're asking if the right team won, it was what would happen if this Lightning team played Colorado, who is arguably probably the best offensive team in the league that, and that they could have ended up playing. So for me, I thought that the Stars got a little bit lucky in the sense that Colorado lost both of their goalies. And I really do think that, um, and, and we'll get into Hedman later, but he was the reason that we kind of all couched our, our bets when we were making our picks. We were all like, yeah, the Lightning, that's a good pick. Uh, if Hedman's healthy, they're probably the best team. I, I literally said that line, I think, multiple times in our preview podcast. Um, 
but for me, Colorado was was the best team in the West, and then they lose both their goaltenders, and they got to run out Michael Hutchison. And you know, the the Stars beat them, and you can only beat who's in front of you. But I do think that Colorado had every bit uh, a claim as as being the Cup favorite as the Lightning, and I do wonder what like you what would have happened if those teams would have faced off you know Mr. Canuck I I thought when you were saying they only played defensive teams that uh, that this was going to be your way of working the Leafs back into this podcast but uh, I came very close (laughs) I'm glad you I'm glad you cycled it around to Colorado ultimately for me I think what made Tampa Bay the best team is how they made themselves bulletproof. They had the team that could run and gun and outscore anyone. And it lost to a defensive team. And and part of that was Hedman being hurt last year and that the embarrassing sweep took place. But they also just got out-muscled by that team as well. and, And it really rattled them. And they came back this year with all these retreads on defense, but big bodies that they could roll out there. And then this completely rebuilt third line that that we talked about before with these big bodies that could match up with anyone. And we're absolutely like they, the story of the first round was the Tampa Bay lightning out blue jacketing the blue jackets with that line of, of Coleman, Goodrow and Gourd absolutely beating the crap out of the Blue Jackets and turnabout as it turns out is fair play and they absolutely did to Columbus what Columbus had done to them. Um, Chris do you think that this Tampa Bay team was bulletproof? No no they certainly were not bulletproof um, and, and you saw that even in, in the Stanley Cup final uh, I'll be honest. If you put, let's say you you magically made everybody healthy and had a wand and made uh, Steven Stamkos' leg heal fully and Tyler Sagan didn't have more problems than we could count. I do think actually that that's a net change for for Dallas, oddly enough. that and probably Sagan would have scored a few goals, something that just never happened uh, from the after the first round. Uh, that that being said, I, I thought they were vulnerable at times, even in that series. Even even in the Boston series, Tampa Bay was a little bit vulnerable at first, and it's just that what Tampa Bay did this year that they did not do last year, obviously was they played the crucial moments much better in each series and in a lot of cases in each game. Um, yeah, they had their moments. They had their one little oopsie moment against the Islanders, but then again, every, well, you could argue a few teams had that um, see Philadelphia. Um, but the thing is this, when you play the moments that well and you have a guy like Victor Hedman who can bounce back even after having a disaster of a game five against Dallas, and let's face it, it was an unmitigated disaster for him possession wise. It was just a mess. Um, He played a much, much better game six. And look, 
I don't know who had it on Twitter because I was I was able to catch it from work at least a little bit. Uh, but midway through the third period, Dallas had nine shots on goal for the game. And it was about 12, 13 minutes left. I saw the screenshot of it um, the other night. I couldn't believe it. I, I really couldn't. It, it just it just didn't it didn't sink in that. Tampa could be that dominant when it wanted to be. And you know, that... it's funny. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny because it, I, I feel like the narrative on Tampa after the Columbus series is, well, they got, they got better defensive or, or they stopped being such a run and gun team. If and you, act, if you, well, I do think they changed their play style, but mm-hmm. if you look at, if you look at them historically in this Cooper era, if you go by rankings uh, within the league, not just the raw actual numbers, but you actually go by rankings, they've actually right. historically been higher in the rankings on the defensive side than they have on the offensive side. They've actually been a fairly strong defensive team by expected goals against for the last five years. I do think that they did change things about their play style. But I think if you're looking, especially if you're a team trying to say, oh, well, how do we be more like Tampa? It would be a mistake to say Tampa focused on defense. I would say Tampa maybe changed the way they attacked, maybe changed their offensive attacking style a little bit. But um, I think that that is as much – I, I, I always – I thought that their shot suppression was a lot more about puck possession than it was about as sort of a, a defensive style of play if you subscribe to those are two actual separate things, which a lot of sort of like progressive hockey minds don't. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with you in the sense that their play style, it really changed to benefit their defensiveness, but it was the way that they played offense. And it really struck me with the way that they would use their, their forwards in such a manner that there, there was always a person regrouping, um, when they move the puck back to the point, instead of everyone crashing the net, they would send uh, uh, one of their forwards high to play in between uh, the two defensemen in, in order to provide extra puck support, right? If you make that D to D pass and the defense is on it, it's a breakaway the other way. But you add that third forward up there and either the defense leaves you open and you've got a quick outlet and then you can continue moving moving the play in the offensive zone and you're, and you're always well supported and that way the defense can pinch when the puck's coming up the wall or the defense comes out and plays that that third forward playing high and suddenly it opens up the middle and so someone else can pop free in a high danger area and it just struck me that they were always providing that excellent support so odd man rushes didn't happen the same way for the Dallas Stars as they did in every other series. And that includes against a juggernaut of a possession team in the Vegas Golden Knights. And I think if there's anything that gets copycatted more, it's going to be the way that both the Islanders and the Lightning played in the offensive zone with that puck support. And it really, it just, it never left them exposed defensively to those counterattacks and more than anyone I thought benefited from that was their top line with Kucherov because there were so many times where 
it could have gotten away from them. They, they would get down a goal and then suddenly, okay, now, now their top guys are going to press and they wouldn't. And so many times you would see, no, we're going to dump the puck in. We're going to forecheck. We're going to get it back. And then once we're in the offensive zone, we're going to provide this support. We're not all going to, you know, we're not going to break out of our system to force for this offense. We know what's going to come eventually. Whereas I think in previous years, they would have broken from that system. They would have gone all offense and then it would have been counterattacks the other way. Yeah, there's definitely a good element of patience in their game that uh, I think it's fair to say was, was a new addition. I can actually think of a few teams that really do try that, that, that third forward sort of high in the offensive zone. Uh, I know the Leafs actually try to do it. They're not nearly as successful when it comes to using that to prevent counterattacks. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Hurricanes have been doing it for two or three years now. Uh, so it's, I, I do think it's something that you're actually going to see a lot of. I think it, you need a certain style of forward core to be able to do it well. Uh, and Tampa's was just the perfect mixture for it. Yeah, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, T- Tampa really en- enjoyed the best of both worlds. Um, <laughs> no pun intended, or, or maybe it is. Uh, lightning quick offense with a defense that was simply able to facilitate their offense. Um, I, I liked how one – I can't remember which writer it was off the top of my head – talked about Tampa Bay's power play like traffic it was as as they put it um a traffic jam in if it was the reverse in berserker mode um and it, and it was interesting because I'm thinking it was like he's like no 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 wait 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 let me use this one he's like it was like a swarm of bumblebees that just never stopped and it's kind of true. Um, there will always be somebody moving around the goaltender's crease. And, yeah, sometimes they would, they would stop and stay a while. Um, but they weren't afraid to change things up when it came to things like their power play. And it really, it really benefited them, especially in, in the Stanley Cup final. Um, when we were doing some of the previews, it's funny. Dallas's power play through the first, you know, three three rounds of the playoffs was ranked second, guys, among all all teams that played eight or more games. Tampa's was near the bottom, mostly because of the Islander series, to be fair, but nonetheless, and. You know, a lot of us were asked, well, what's the biggest X factor in the series? It's, I was like, well, it's simply special teams. If Tampa wins a special teams battle, they are going to win the Stanley Cup. There is, there is zero doubt about this. Uh, and they have the ability to do so. And that was arguably the main difference in this series was that basically Tampa, I think through the first five games or so, was six for 15 on the power play. And Dallas was like one for the sun. <laughs> um it just it was just one one thing after another and they could not get anything going they, they really couldn't and when they did have a halfway decent op- opportunity Andre Vasilevsky would st- would would you know make make that crucial save that 
Anton Hudobin could not make. And that was, you know, just one of, one of those things in this series. So, yeah, it, it, it's definitely something. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see, though, I guess for, for whenever next season starts. Um, God, we're going to, do we get to go into the Stanley Cup hangover yet? Because we don't even know when that's going to begin at this point. They might need a Capitals level bender to to stretch it into whenever we're actually going to start the season. So we we'll, we'll we'll see. Although here alcohol consumption is generally increased under COVID, so that could also even out. <laughs> Something to think about. I, I have a question: Is are the Tampa Bay Lightning of this year? Are they are they the Leafs with defensive ability, or are they the Golden Knights with finishing talent? Uh, I'll jump in here. I think they're kind of their own thing. Like there's, there's a certain element of the golden Knights are, they're very much more that Los Angeles Kings. We're just going to wear you out with shots and we aren't necessarily working for better shots type of thing. And they managed to find that finishing talent every single year at the deadline in their cup winning years. But otherwise it was just, it was all about dominating that puck possession and their power play would get hot at the right time because they added the right shooting talent. Whereas, I don't know, maybe it is the Leafs with a defensive conscience and their players are so much older than the Leafs. One of the things that you mentioned that the Leafs had tried bringing that third forward high as an element of strategy. And to me, it strikes that why it wouldn't work with the Leafs is because those guys are just so young that they're not going to commit to a system the way that a more veteran team will. So is it the fact that they're like the Leafs, but they've been through the ringer, so they're willing to commit to the system more? I mean, that's the answer I kind of wanted to hear. But I, I mean, I, I, I was I was actually posing that question legitimately. I think you're right to say they are their own team. I mean, you and I basically spent the first hour of this talking about how unique Tampa is just as a franchise the last six years. So it's not like anyone can just be Tampa. But I think, yeah, if you're if you're analyzing them stylistically, I do I do think that that idea of, you know, other teams try to do what they do, but they either don't have the talent or you're right, they don't have the commitment. They haven't been through the experience to know that you actually have to do stuff like that, like back check or, <laughs> you know, stop in the defensive zone. Yeah, and I, I would just – the Leafs piss me off so much because they just oh, – me it too. Strikes, it strikes me that they're very much – like everyone in Tampa Bay gets a bridge deal, and that's just the way that it is. And the Leafs have all their players. They get all the money right away, and that's, that's how they played it. And then they come out and they're like, you know what? I didn't bring it as well as I could have in this playoff series. And – that's that's great that you took ownership of it, but at the same time, well, then if you're going to be the guy who can't bring it in that situation, then you don't get to be $11 million a year. Sorry, you need to be better than that. And I don't think that all of their players 
were the problem with regard to that, but it very much strikes me as what happened in, I don't think it's going to get outrageous off the ice the same way that it did in the 90s when it was too much too soon for the NBA players. But on the ice, I think that very much too much too soon for these players. They they performed exceptionally well during the regular season, but I don't know that they necessarily earned those contracts because, well, I mean, ultimately those contracts are earned in the regular season, but the reason that teams give players those that money is because they want to see the results in the playoffs and they didn't bring it. And it, it really frustrates me. And I, I wonder if there isn't a certain element of part of why Tampa is what they are because part of their system is no, you don't get too much too soon. Like, Kucherov can go out and have a 90-point season, and he's still getting a bridge deal. This is what this is how we do business. We're not paying you in, until it's time. For the sake of my blood pressure, I'm, I'm going to try not to talk about the contracts on the Leafs. But I do think that there's definitely something to Tampa's contract structure as being part of a buy-in, where forget what the contract structure is, but the idea that you your contract is going to be or your contract structure is going to be the same as the teams. I do think that the, the basic idea of that does help with buy-in. It lets you kind of feel as though you're part of a team, you know, like even if, even if it was something else, the idea that, okay, I'm Braden point, I'm taking a bridge deal. I'm not upset about that because I know that the guys ahead of me took a bridge deal too. Um, you know, I know Nikita Kudrop took a bridge deal and I feel like that there is something to that where it does really help with, with the buy-in. You know, it does really help make you feel like a team. And that's you know, always easy to say in hindsight, but you did read about stuff like this where they, you know, they said like, no, we, we, we really were, we came together this year as a unit. Uh, but then of course, Vasilevsky, Vasilevsky, Mr. Moneybags, he, you know, gets nine and a half, but. But that was after a bridge deal for him as well. He was finishing out. Oh, was, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He just finished his bridge. So everyone gets a bridge. I, it's taken. It's troll rules in Tampa Bay. Everyone is under the bridge. And that's the way it's going to go for Sorelli and Chernak and Sergachev this summer. And we're going to roll back out and it's going to be the, the lightning contending for a cup again this year. Chris, you said that the lightning aren't going to win next year's cup whenever that happens. So I'm wondering if before we get out of here, who do you think is winning next year's cup? Uh, it's going to pain me to say this, but, um, maybe by some miracle they don't, but it's, it's looking like the Colorado avalanche. They're going to be angry by what happened. Um, look, Nathan McKinnon is Nathan McKinnon. And that's one, that's one man I do not want to ever see angry, um, ever. So if you thought he was on a mission this year, I, I, I shudder to think what, what it will be like next, next season um, when, when fully motivated. And you gotta, you got to figure, like, like we said earlier in the show, um, if it wasn't for, for the goaltending injuries, and we'll even throw in Eric Johnson's injury um, just because he was a mentor to the younger, younger defenseman on, on the avalanche you have to list them as a slight favorite even over Tampa Bay at this point, because to be honest, uh, Vegas had them as a, as a, as a more um, a slightly heavier favorite than, than Tampa Bay uh, when the playoff previews came out. 
And some of that was because they were hesitant because of the injury to Stamkos. And some of it was just sheer, the sheer young talent on, on Colorado itself. Yeah, I have to agree with you with the Colorado sentiment. It just seems like they are, they've got the cap space. They've got the ludicrous young talent. I, I think that they had the best team in the Western Conference until injuries derailed their goaltenders. Who knows what they had. Um, McKinnon, you mentioned him. Like He's had some of the best quotes. Like I think it was, it was earlier this season. It feels like over a year ago now um, when he was talking about, I'll take less on my next contract. Like, I don't care. And then in the bubble, they had to play like a back-to-back. And he's like, yeah, I don't care. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm gonna, I like, I expect to be the, at my best. And it just seems like he's that guy. Um, Mr. Kung Fu, who do you think is winning the next year's Stanley cup? I, I mean, I gotta say the, the easy answer is Colorado. Can I say one thing about Colorado that I do find a bit, not concerning, but I, I do wonder about them this year is this year was the first year where they ridiculously outscored their expectations. They, they were, they were the, the number one scoring team in the league by, by actual goals. If you look at expected, they were actually kind of below average. And this, this Nathan McKinnon led Colorado team has actually always been a little offensively inept, uh, obviously outside of the McKinnon Landeskog duo. So that's the one thing that actually gives me a little bit of pause on the avalanche. I mean, I don't know. It's great. I'll, I'll still say the lightning. I, I, unless something happens, I, I just, they're so good. And presumably the people, assuming everything for them goes according to plan, the guys that they're jettisoning are not going to be the key contributors. And the guys that they are going to keep are the ones who actually were driving the bus. I would still personally have them as my favorite. So, and, and they don't have those concerns for me that, that Colorado did. I also want to say Vegas, but I'm now on the train of Vegas is in that Carolina Montreal mold where their their expected goals and offense are not quite matched up by the reality of what they're actually able to do. Uh, I think that they're a team that might always undershoot their 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 chances. So I still have those as my trio, but I'm a little less bullish on the Avalanche than than maybe Chris is. All right, everyone, that is your episode of the podcast. Stick tap to the Kung Fu Canuck and Chris Wassell for coming on the podcast. Make sure that you give those guys a follow on Twitter and make sure you like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And that would be much appreciated. And I realize that this is the end of the NHL season, but... It's not really. We've got a draft coming up, and then we've got free agency, and maybe we'll have a lull where we're waiting to see what comes of the next season, but I don't think I'm done with the podcast just yet. The last time that we had a lull, I dove into some projects doing some redrafts. Uh, I don't know what the future will hold for this podcast, but uh, I'm not planning on stopping doing it. So hopefully we'll keep up with at least one episode per week. We really appreciate uh, those of you who have been following along thus far. And while we're here, let's give a shout out to the NHL for pulling this off again. I hope it comes through on the episode with how impressed we were with the Lightning for 
surviving the crazy marathon that was this year's playoffs and to the NHL for pulling it off and everyone involved from those who were planning and those involved in the support staff. There was tons of people involved on the medical side. Just, I mean, I can't even imagine. I, I'm thinking about the logistics that it takes to run a 20 person forest fire. And that was an insane amount of work for a, multiple people to carry off and i can only imagine what it was like to pull something like this off every single team is you know double triple the that volume and i just i can't say enough with i was optimistic that they would pull it off and but in the back of your mind there was always that lingering little bit of doubt but they pulled it off and i'm so impressed so Again, that's our show for this week. Hopefully, we'll have more excellent stuff coming. We've got an NHL draft to look forward to. Maybe uh, maybe the most exciting part of the season that isn't the playoffs. So, again, thanks for tuning in, and I'm out.